Hi friends, Fred Harrell here. Thanks for tuning in to the weekly City Church Sermon Podcast. Just a note that as we continue to shelter in place here in San Francisco, we will be bringing you our Sunday Sermon audio recording via Skype over a Facebook Live broadcast. So if the audio quality seems like a little lower than normal, then now you know what's happening. We just wanted you to know. You can join us on Facebook Live each Sunday at 10 a.m. Thanks for listening and subscribing to our podcast. The scripture reading today is from Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 25. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The Word of the Lord. Let us pray. Holy Lord, I ask that in this time that you would come to us by your Spirit, that you would minister to each of us with the words that we need to hear during this time, minister to each of our own hearts, and come to us now, we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, City Church. Good morning again. It's great to get to be with you and to bring the sermon to you today. Um, I'm really excited about it. And as I was preparing for today in reading this passage, I was reminded of a story from my childhood, really a story about kind of the way I was as a kid. You see, as a young kid, I was that kid that always, always, always wanted to go to the store with my mom, no matter what, any kind of store, anytime, anywhere where I could ask for things and she could buy things, I wanted to go, even if I wasn't interested in it at all. And I actually remember one time begging my mom to go to the grocery store with her. She had some apprehension, I think, because she knew what would happen once we got there. But I remember begging her to go and she agreed on one condition, that I was not allowed to ask for anything until we got to the checkout aisle, at which point I could pick out the candy. And I agreed, and I was lying. And once we got in there, 
the pressure was on. On some occasions, though, on these trips, these shopping trips that I would work so hard to get myself on, something would go wrong. I would get myself on one of these trips and we would end up at a store that I did not like, perhaps a Christian bookstore or a Hallmark store. And a quick aside, Christian bookstore and Hallmark store, are they pretty much the same thing or pretty much not the same thing? You can talk about that in the chat and let me know what you think. But I did not like either of those stores. I'm not sure exactly why, but they were just boring and they had carpet and you always felt like you were doing something wrong, even if you weren't. Um, so those were two of my least favorite, but there was one that was worse and they were called department stores. You might remember these. They used to exist, or I think they still do, although we can't really go in them right now. But they went by different names uh, when I was growing up in places we lived. Higby's, Dillard's, Burdine's. That's a shout out to old Florida there, if you know about that. But to a young kid, they were all pretty much the same, and they were all universally horrible and boring. And they also always took way longer than any of the other stores. So I remember going in there and just feeling like we spent an entire day there. It was awful. Yet, that didn't change my desire to get on every shopping trip that I could. But as a really little kid, one of the ways that I remember entertaining myself when we would be in a department store when I was short enough was to actually go inside the clothing racks. Does anyone else remember doing this? Picture the circular rack full of clothes and you can climb through the clothes and then there's this big empty space in the middle from which you can hide there or you can jump out and scare your family or think you scared them at least. But I used to love to just hide in the clothing racks and sort of, you know, go into a fort in there of sorts and then jump out and surprise my mom. One time I remember I decided to get really creative and I remember that I decided to move between the clothing racks. I decided to move from rack to rack to rack stealthily in order to do a surprise attack from behind. I was really proud of my plan and I remember going into one rack and then you know, pulling the clothes aside and looking both ways, making sure no one was there and crossing through the aisle and getting into the next rack and thinking I'm just moving through this whole store and nobody knows where I am or where I can see or can see me, but I know where I am and I'm gonna jump out and surprise everyone. Well, as I was doing that and I came time for my big reveal and I jumped out into the aisle where I thought my mom was, but there was no one there. And I remember this brief moment of panic, of this feeling of I'm alone, I'm lost, I'm vulnerable and I'm separate. And it couldn't have been more than 30 seconds or a minute, but I remember it like it was kind of an eternity before I was found. It, it really scared me for a minute. It made me more cautious about playing in the clothing racks going forward. But I'm reminded of that story from the reading from our passage today, because I think some of what Paul is trying to communicate here about what life in the spirit is like is not a feeling of being separate or alone, it's not separation. What life in the spirit is, is a life of profound connection and safety and adoption of even as adult people being closely connected to a divine loving parent. As he says in verse 14 through 17, which will really form the crooks of the sermon today, he says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received a spirit of adoption 
When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that spirit, that very spirit, bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if, in fact, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So life in the spirit is a life of deep, deep, profound connection with God and with others. And according to this passage, it isn't, it isn't um, mediated by an institution or a book. In fact, the Spirit ministers directly to us through and in our own selves because we are related. As Paul says, we are adopted. The Spirit is ours by nature. And its home is resting, it's, it's resting at home in our souls. And we simply need to uncover it. But Paul is also suggesting that it's not an easy path. And like Jesus' path, the uncovering comes through suffering. So today we'll look at a few different things about this passage. What Paul refers to as life not in the spirit, what he calls life in the flesh. And then we'll look at the path of suffering towards a life that is different, a life that is lived, as Paul says, in the spirit. But first looking at life in the flesh, and if you grew up in the church, you might have heard this term, life in the flesh, And it might have been used as a passage to shame you or to bludgeon you or to call call you out of your body or call you out of your sexuality. And that was certainly the effect that it had on me in some instances growing up. But the funny thing here about the word flesh, life in the flesh, is that the Greek word used here is pronounced in English sarks, and it is best translated as the human state of being, or the present state of things. It's how we find ourselves in the world. And this is in contrast to the word soma, the Greek word for body, not south of market, in case that confused you, but uh, soma, think somatics, things like that. That's the word for body, and it is not the word that's used here. The word used here that's translated flesh is talking about how we find ourselves in the world, the present state of things, you know, the human state of things. And so I think it's worth pointing out, you know, in some detail there, that contrast about those words. But there's a lot going on in this passage, and I don't want to spend too much time parsing out, you know, different words and what exactly means what. That would take forever. But what I'd rather do today is invite us instead into perhaps seeing this passage maybe a little bit differently than we have in the past. This isn't going to be the definitive be-all, end-all to Paul's view of life in the Spirit or this passage, but I do think I'm going to invite us into uh, seeing a picture of it that might be a little bit similar and a little bit different than perhaps the one that we've had in the past, if we've had this passage in our life in the past at all. So what does it mean then, as Paul says, to leave behind the things of the flesh, the given state of things? And I'd like to propose to us that the given state of things, like the way I felt when I jumped out of the clothing racks, is a state of separation. And in fact, at some point in early childhood, developmental psychologists believe that there's a transition point where we realize that we are no longer permanently inside of our mother's body. I don't think it's, you know, necessarily conscious. I don't think there's a lot of babies or, you know, one or two-year-olds having a, you know, OMG, I'm stuck out here moment necessarily. But there is good reason to think that there is a point where we realize this and that it starts to change things. 
And as we grow a few more years, perhaps by the age of five or six, we begin to look outside of ourselves to assess who we need to be, what we need to have, who we need to become in order to survive in this world. And this is the point where everything changes. It's our own coming into the knowledge of good and evil, so to speak. It's our own fall at a personal level. You could think of it that way. We see our nakedness. We become self-conscious. It's our coming into life in the flesh, as Paul calls it, the way things are, how we find ourselves in the world. And we begin to build our lives around this knowledge. And the thing is, this is necessary. You can't really avoid it. You need a job to make money. You need a place to live. You need to wear clothes. You need a country to keep you safe. You need a community to support and be supported by. You need an identity. But building this life might involve hiding whole parts of ourselves. It can involve living in a constant state of fear of losing, of losing what we have or being found out for who we really are. It can involve what Paul calls here the spirit of slavery to fear. It involves being captive to fear. And so always trying to acquire more, always trying to put more on ourselves to protect ourselves, more money, more work, more space, more relationships. The list could go on as a way of hedging ourselves against the inevitable loss that is coming, the inevitable loss that we all know is coming. Yet it's what we have to do in order to survive. And I have a picture of myself at about the age of two on a beach somewhere on the Gulf Coast. And get ready, there are more personal illustrations coming in this sermon, so you're going to get a, a deep dive with me. Um, sorry, not sorry. But I keep this picture because in it, I am unabashedly joyful. I'm about to on the beach, and I'm laughing, my arms are wide open, and I'm in the water. And it's just a picture of you know pure, unadulterated, unfiltered joy. But the thing is, by the time I popped out of that clothing rack into that empty department store aisle a few years later, I was not really that kid anymore. Not because anything you know, terrible had happened to me, but simply because I had seen more of the world. My eyes were open. I knew that I wasn't entirely safe. I knew that I was separate and could be lost. I became obsessed with safety, and as the years went on, I knew that I needed to hide whole parts of myself by my teenage years, particularly and most traumatizing, hiding my sexuality, not letting that be found out. I needed to keep a mask on. I needed to keep a lid on things. And I believe that part of moving from life in the flesh to life in the spirit involves going inward. It involves looking at ourselves, seeing what are these things that we've become? What have we taken on that's false? In the words of St. Teresa of Avila, she said, It is foolish to think that we will enter heaven without entering into ourselves. And I believe that most psychological and spiritual work is really slowly engaging the work of untying the knots, of peeling back the layers, of moving back to that sense of original belonging, of being held, of being at home in the world. And I think that sense is what is evident in that photo of a very young version of me at the beach. The work is hard though, it's not fun. And it often, if not always, comes through suffering. And there's really 
apparently no way around it. Paul says that we will receive life in the Spirit if, if in fact we suffer. It's almost as if there's a little bit of a choice involved, not as to whether or not we'll suffer. The suffering will surely find us, no matter what. But if we will suffer with Christ, if we will move all the way through the suffering and see what it has for us. Richard Rohr, in his book, Falling Upward, which I highly recommend to everyone and to give credit where credit is due, many of the ideas in the first half of the sermon come from that book, uh, so I strongly recommend it. But in that book, he, referring to the psychoanalyst Carl Jung, says, so much unnecessary suffering comes into the world because people will not accept the legitimate suffering that comes from being human. In fact, he said, neurotic behavior is usually the result of refusing that legitimate suffering. And you might even say that this is some of where we're finding ourselves as a country right now. The refusal to wear masks, not avoiding large gatherings, coming up with you know, bizarre conspiracy theories about the origins of COVID-19. All of this can be a way of refusing an aspect of suffering that is very human. And as hard and as scary as the pandemic is, and I don't want to underestimate or minimize the incredible suffering that we are all going through at some levels and that some of us have experienced off the charts levels of suffering in this. I'm not minimizing that at all, but what I do want to say is that there is nothing uncommon to being human about being in fear of a new disease or going through a pandemic or experiencing a plague. These things are recorded in our oldest histories and in our oldest mythologies. It's part of the human experience, as hard as it is. And refusing to accept this reality that we are going through something very, very hard, I think is leading to more death and more suffering and longer isolation, while also blinding us, perhaps individually and definitely collectively, to the calling that exists in this for us to change as people and to change as society. If we're honest, though, the same thing happens in our own lives, you know. If you're like me, you might, you know, shame, you know, anti-maskers. You might be angry at photos you see on the news of a crowded pool party. And I don't think any of that's good. But if we're honest, all of us, when something bad or hard or difficult happens, we tend to want to blow past it. We refuse to look at what it's trying to show us. We blame others. And in that, we miss the opportunity to change. To say, though, that suffering is necessary in some sense is not to say that suffering is good or should be celebrated, you know, or should be, you know, bypassed as some sort of learning opportunity. And too often those with power and privilege will tell those with less power and less privilege that their suffering is necessary. And that's not what I'm saying here. And that's certainly not what Paul is saying as he's writing here to Roman Christians who are suffering persecution, are literally in fear for their own lives, even as he is suffering terrible things. So I'm not saying that suffering is good. What I am saying, though, is that when we are visited by suffering, especially those kinds of suffering that are really common to being human, you know, losing a relationship, losing a loved one, a job, the loss of health, or living through a pandemic, 
There is an invitation in such incidences to take a hard inventory of our lives and decide what needs to be let go of, to see what needs to change in order for us to live on a deeper and truer plane of existence, to live what Paul calls life in the spirit. And it seems that suffering has a way of decluttering our lives from everything that stands between us and this deep, deep connection with God. And the thing is, it's really worth it. It's worth it to go through it. It's worth it to go all the way through it, to get to a truer, a truer version of you, to be, able, to be able to be more open, to be able to be more honest, to be able to share your story, your whole story. Because as we've said, the suffering will find us no matter what, it's there. It's a matter of whether or not we will move through it. To quote the words of Maya Angelou, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside of you. The suffering finds us. The untold story is there and it's hard and it'll be there no matter what, but it's our decision whether or not to move through it. Paul asks if we will suffer, if we will suffer with Christ, will we move through it? That's the invitation. And so moving through suffering, what might be on this? What might be on the other side? What might life in the spirit be like? Well, I think that we all experience it differently. I think it's a sense, um, has many different senses to it, but at a core level, I think you could describe life in the spirit as a sense of being deeply, deeply, deeply at home, deeply at home in your own self, deeply at home in God, deeply at home in your present circumstances. I think it's a meeting of a longing that, to quote Maya Angelou again, she says, I long, as does every human being, to be at home wherever I find myself. And I think that life in the spirit is to be at home wherever you find yourself. To get some other thoughts, some other quotes on what life in the spirit might be like, I think it could also be feeling, not just thinking, but feeling how you are intimately connected to every other living thing and to God. The 12th century mystic Hildegard of Bingen put it this way, saying, I am the fiery life of the essence of God. I am the flame above the beauty in the fields. I shine in the waters. I burn in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and with the airy wind. I quicken all things vitally by an unseen, all-sustaining life. So I think part of life in the spirit might be having a felt sense of being tapped into this unseen and all-sustaining life. And thirdly, author Paula Darcy put it this way after a period of just immense and tragic loss and suffering. She writes, without fully understanding why, I began to soften. I saw life's contour, its density and its brilliance, just as it was, nothing more. I saw how I'd been caught in a script of my own creation and was totally caught up in my own world, my emotions, my wants and my needs. Now it was simply my time, my turn to know the darkness and to discover whether or not I was brave enough to accept the human journey and to find a way through. 
I slowly began to see that within the cells of every living thing is the same same essence, the presence of spirit. And so these are all descriptions of what life in the spirit might be like. I don't know if any of them, you know, speak or may not speak to you. But there's also an aspect to all of this that no human being is able to stay in those moments, to stay in that state permanently. We have to go to work. We have to do laundry. We have to care for others. We have disagreements with loved ones. We suffer loss. Sometimes we're even fighting for our own survival. But I do believe it is possible to spend enough time in the spirit to sustain ourselves through the difficulties of life, through those moments when we have to be more focused on the day-to-day tasks of life. There are things we can do. While there's no surefire way to guarantee an experience, there are ways to clear a path towards a greater measure of living life in the spirit. I think some of the hardest and most important is to revisit the deep pains of our lives, to revisit past trauma with the help of a skilled therapist, perhaps also trusted friends, ideally both, so that we can begin to heal. That is some of the hardest and I think most important work of decluttering what stands between us and connection. Deep prayer can also help you express what Paul calls in verse 23, the inward groan, the deep, deep pain that we carry that needs to be expressed to God. Also, centering prayer and meditation practices can declutter our minds and help us to be able to hear and see more clearly the Spirit's calling in our day-to-day life. Intimate sharing with others, feeling fully seen and loved, can also clear a path for the Holy Spirit. But sometimes, though, life in the Spirit, it just finds you and it surprises you. It can be very unexpected. And I had such an experience last October. I had the very hard privilege of getting to be with my maternal grandmother, who we affectionately called Grana, as she passed from this life into the next and she was, a, she was a matriarchal figure in our family. She was a force. And in her own way, she stayed deeply connected to me into my adult life, never forgetting a birthday, even into my 20s and 30s, and always reminding me that she prayed for me every day and that she was always, as she would say, placing me at the center of God's will. That's what she always said. And she was a charismatic Christian, and a woman of strong faith. Her prayers had energy and power. She was the type of person who would pray and things would happen. It was, you know, bizarre sometimes and kind of amazing. But in her, I could see a close relationship with the Holy Spirit. I could see a closeness to a divine loving presence that guided her throughout her days. And she was always careful to make sure that I knew that that same Holy Spirit was always close to me and wanted to be close to me. And so we were gathered in October in her hospice room. We knew that she was going to die soon. We didn't know whether it would be hours or perhaps a day or two. But then suddenly, shortly after my brother Jonathan kissed her goodbye to catch his flight, the space between her breaths got longer and longer. It was 
clear that she was dying now. It happened very suddenly. There was a rapid deterioration. And as it became clear to all of us in the room that she was going, my mom and my aunts and my uncle, all five of her children, all five in their 50s and 60s now, they gently rested their hands on her head, held her hands, held her feet. They surrounded her almost like you would a woman in labor. In some sense, it reminded me of what Paul says here in verse 22 and 23. I felt like I was witnessing the labor pains of creation, longing for the redemption of our bodies. I was witnessing that transition. I felt like I was witnessing five grown children help their mother into the next life, into life fully in the spirit, fully with that spirit that she always kept so close to herself. Standing behind them was me and my sister Mary and our cousin Joel. We were three of you know, many grandchildren out there, and we were surrounding Grandma's five grown children. And it was profoundly sad. We were all crying. Yet in this moment, the veil cracked for me a little bit. All the separations fell away for a little bit. The separations of time, of generations, of viewpoints, the separations of politics, of agreements and disagreements, the separations of love and of hurt, it all faded for a minute. And for me in that time, there was actually very little sense of I, of me. Rather, there was a really profound sense of deep, deep connection with the living, with the dying, and with all those many generations that had come before and would come after the three generations of us that were represented in that room. It felt like we were nine people, nine points of spirit, seeing one of our own move fully into that life in the spirit, fully into that life with the close presence of God that was always so close to her in her day-to-day -day life on this earth. And the thing is that for me, that moment, that reality, actually felt like a truer reality than what I live most of my days. In that reality, I was no longer separate. I was not alone and in fact realized that to some extent, it's impossible to be truly alone. And I'll always remember it in the way that it felt. I wish in some ways that I could go back and bottle it and keep it, but I can't do that. I have to wait for the next thing that'll put me there, and it'll probably be another hard and painful thing. But I think for me, that moment was a gift. It was a deep taste of what I think life in the Spirit can be like, and what I think so much of this passage from Paul is trying to get at. It's asking us to let go of what we have to let go of, to go through the hard thing with our eyes wide open, looking around, seeing everything that it has to teach us. And then coming into new life, following the pattern of Jesus, life, death, resurrection, over and over and over again, until we too are on that bed where we too cross fully into life in the Spirit. I'm going to close with uh, the words of one of my favorite poets, John O'Donohue, who said, if you could interview a baby in the womb, a baby that was about to be born, 
and the baby asked you, what is going to happen to it? And you said, you're going to go through a very dark channel. You're going to be pushed out. You are going to arrive into a vacant world of open air and light. The cord that connects you to your mother is going to be cut. You're going to be on your own forevermore. And regardless of how close you come to another, you will never belong in the way that you have been able to belong here. The baby would have no choice to but, but to conclude that it was going to die. Maybe death is that way too, though, as it seems that we die from inside the womb of the world. We are born into a new world where space and time and all separation and all difficulties no longer assail us. We are coming home. Amen.